morning, good afternoon, or good evening, and welcome to Inside the Writer's Studio, the podcast where we talk with writers about their lives, their craft, their business, and their latest work. I'm your host, Charlie Lovett, and our podcast is sponsored by Bookmarks. Bookmarks is a literary nonprofit whose programs include the largest annual book festival in the Carolinas. Come visit Bookmarks at our community gathering space and nonprofit independent bookstore in downtown Winston-Salem, North Carolina. Inside the Writer Studio is also proud to be an affiliate of Libro FM, the audiobook platform that supports your local independent bookstore. Stay tuned at the end of the podcast for more information on Libro FM and a special offer. My guest today is Booker Prize winner Roddy Doyle, who's here to talk about his new book of short stories, Life Without Children. Roddy, welcome to Inside the Writer Studio. Thank you. Um, it strikes me that I'm not sure there's any country on earth where literature and place are more closely linked than, than in Ireland. Um, how do you feel connected to that sort of um, history of, of Irish storytelling and how, how does it sort of manifest itself in your work? I don't pay too much attention to it when I'm actually working. I just, uh, it's me and the page in front of me, really. I am aware that the story I'm writing is more likely than not going to be set in Dublin, yeah. uh, where I'm living and where I'm sitting at the moment. And I know that the characters are going to be walking, you know, through Dublin streets and they're going to be encountering people who speak back to them with Dublin accents. And so I'm aware of that, but it's more, that's even, that's, that, I see that as kind of a practical challenge as much mm -hmm. as anything else, how to, how to uh, capture the Dublin accent, how to uh, keep up to date with the slang mm -hmm. if I need it. Um, how, for example, if I set a story today, what are the streets like as opposed to what they were like three years ago before the lockdowns, before the pandemic? So that's the work. When I'm not working, then I am aware of the fact that um, I live in a city and in a country that has a rich uh, literary tradition. And I enjoy that. Um, I enjoy when I'm, say, strolling through Dublin, um, I enjoyed the, the fact that I very regularly would walk the same streets that Brendan Behan and Sean O'Casey walked. Yeah. Um, every, virtually every day, I walk past the house that Bram Stoker grew up in. Mm. Uh, often doesn't get a look in as a Dublin writer, but he was. He wasn't yeah. just born and then transported to London. He, he, he spent his formative years right into adulthood living in Dublin in a place called Marino, which is a 10 minute walk from where I'm sitting at the moment. Um, so I'm very aware of it. And I really do enjoy the current surge in writing among young people. It would seem particularly women because they all seem to have the wish to write fiction, not to make movies or to, you know, they're doing that as well. The, the, the film industry here is thriving. That's the first time really in my life I could say that with, 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 with a bit of confidence. There are a lot of good films being made and a lot of good music being made. Um, but it's sort of thrilling that young people in their 20s and 30s still want to put their words on paper. Yep, yep. So I'm aware of the fact that, you know, it's part of me. So that, and, and that makes me feel good. You, you've written in a wide variety of forms. You've written novels, you've written screenplays. Life Without Children, the new book, is a collection of short stories. How do you approach the task of a short story differently from, from a novel or a screenplay or, or a different form? Um, 
a novel is kind of like a relationship. You get to know the character in a way. It's a gradual thing. You kind of feel giddy about it at first, as you do when you meet somebody new, a new friend or uh, somebody who you might even end up spending the rest of your life with. And then gradually you get to know them, you know, and it becomes more of a day-to-day thing. But it is a gradual process. One of my novels I recall, uh, the, the Woman Who Walked Into Doors. It took me two years to write that book, but the bulk of what I wrote in the first year ended up in the bin because it was very vague. I, was, I didn't know the character, the narrator. But a short story, it's different. In a way, you have to know the person. You have to know the man or the woman immediately. You know, there's no... You know, you can twist the plot and you can, you know, you can bring in a bit of suspense, but you can't actually get to know the character in a short story. It has to be there. The narrator or the person we're observing has to be there from the very first words in a, in a very confident way. So stories are about moments, I think, in life, as opposed to, you know, a novel, a novel can be an entire life or, you know, an edited version of a life. A story is a is a moment in a life, you know, perhaps a revealing moment, a moment that changes somebody or just a moment. But so the process, you'd think, you'd almost wish that because short stories are much shorter than novels, that they'd be a bit easier. You know? But actually, I've, I find them, they're a lot harder. Yeah, they're harder because they're very intense. It's a bit like, you know, if I, I'm a novelist, so I might be considered a long distance runner. And then I'm told you have to be a sprinter. Yeah. And uh, that might at one level seem quite easy because I no longer have to run 10,000 meters or whatever the distance of a marathon is. I've never bothered finding out. <laughs> it, was, it was never among the, <laughs> my list. It's never been, it wasn't, it's never been on my, uh, my list of things I must do. But so I go from being a novelist to a short story writer and it's very hard. But again, that's one of the reasons I do it because... It's not hard in the sense that it's emotionally hard or it's, it's upsetting. It's a challenge, you know, and that, you know, and if you're writing a collection, then it's almost having to write, you know, in the case of this new book, there are 10 stories and it's only 10 beginnings, 10 middles, 10 ends, 10 sets of characters, 10 new names. Um, and when you live in a country where, you know, when I was a kid, half the male population was called Paddy, you know, <laughs> So you never had too much difficulty coming up with a name. Now it's, you know, more varied, obviously. And the names come from all over the place, and not, not just in terms of where they originate, but also um, the inspiration for names. Um, so uh, it's, it's uh, yeah, it's a full-time job, to put it mildly. But the real, it's the intensity of the short story, I think, that is different. I, I heard another writer recently talking about the difference between an incident and a story. How do you know when that, you talk about that moment, how do you know when it's a moment that you can hang a story on versus, no, this is this is just an incident? I think sometimes it's a little bit, sometimes in the telling. Um, in my life, incidents are normally things I observe and then start telling people about. Now and again, they become stories or I put them, you know, behind my ear for later, like, an old, like a cigarette yeah. <laughs> in the old days when <laughs> it was quite a common sight to see a cigarette behind someone's ear. It could be there for days. <laughs> <laughs> Forgotten about until needed. But I, um, 
sometimes it becomes, if you like, an amusing story, but it, it isn't going to work on paper. I'm not sure if it's because there's no, or what would you say? I don't even know how to explain it properly. It may be there's an incident that reveals nothing. Mm. You know, it just happened, which is fair enough. It may change when I begin to think of a fictional character observing the incident or being directly involved in the incident. Then perhaps it becomes a short story. But it is an interesting question. I've seen, you know, I've been on the planet for nearly 64 years, so I've seen a lot of things. I've lived, you know, through a lot. I've observed a lot. I've had, I don't know how many jobs I've had. Two in particular have occupied most of my adult, all of my adult life. And yet the bulk of it, I never see as fiction, if you know what I mean. I don't see it, the potential there. It's often a little thing that sparks the thing that becomes a novel, which in anyone's life is a big thing. Yeah. So it's, uh, there's, no neat, there's no neat answer to the question. Yeah. It's, a, it's an interesting one, but I think if you asked me to go away and come back with a couple of pages that explain it, yeah. it wouldn't be very satisfactory, which yeah. is why I prefer to write and not write about writing. Yeah, yeah. You, you bring a wonderful sense of meaning in these stories to, to everyday objects, whether it's a, a coffee mug or a boxed set of DVDs. Or what, how, how, do you, how do you sort of incorporate those, those details? How do you look for those details in the world that you know are the ones that are going to sort of really make those characters pop to life? I don't know. So I, maybe the limits of my imagination, because coffee and mugs feature large in my own life. You know? <laughs> And DVDs, I mean, you look at them now and you're puzzled, you know, yeah. <laughs> if it's like, if it's like um, video cassettes, you're yeah. looking at them and wondering, what was that all about? <laughs> but I do think I, I've always been interested in the little details of people's daily lives. I mean, I've often asked people and they look a bit, some of them look a bit, uh, a bit wary when I ask, I'm talking to somebody and I'd say, you know, they're talking about work and I'd say, you know, how do you get there? Because I'm curious, it's not that I want to know how I personally would get there and what bus or combination, combination of buses you should use, but it's the little details of somebody's life, because actually coming and going from places, as I think is touched on in one of the stories of the yeah. new collection, the masks or masks, where a man is robbed of its opportunity to come and go from, to go to work and come from work, big parts of the scaffolding of his life, you know, and I'm working currently on a book with a boxer. Uh, she's a woman called Kelly Harrington, and she won a gold medal in the Olympics in Tokyo in 2020. And she's a fascinating woman. She's really, it's been a pleasure working with her. But just now, before I started talking to you, I was listening to her and transcribing the day or that chunk of the day between the weigh-in first thing in the morning and her fight in the afternoon and what she does. And I'm absorbed by it. I'm absolutely absorbed by it. But she got what I wanted to know. And she just gave me almost a minute by minute uh, description of the tedium of what she does in the hours between weigh-in and the boxing. And I find it fascinating, you know. She told me exactly what she eats and she sits and she does nothing. And she tries desperately not to do anything because it saps the energy and distracts. And, um, you know, there's one really nice detail where she notices all the vending machines on the Tokyo streets on the bus to the stadium 
And to distract herself, she counts the vending machines, you know. And we were both agreeing it's something you couldn't do in Dublin. <laughs> if there aren't any, you know, you'd have to choose something else. But um, so those little details, I I just find them really interesting. And I suppose we have a lot of them in common. So certainly in Ireland, putting on the kettle is something that everybody identifies with it because we all do it. And we don't, I don't have to talk about the weight of the kettle or how it gets heavier when you put it under the tap and fill, or the faucet and start filling it. These details are in the muscle memory of the people who are reading, you know? So you pick and you choose. I suppose, you know, and there are, there are some things that I would repeat again and again and again, largely because um, they're part of the repetition of my own life. Yeah. Yeah. You've worked as a playwright, you've worked as a screenwriter, um, mm. and you're known in your novels also for um, a, a, using a lot of dialogue. And I, mm. I actually, I love to write with the dialogue as well, but I wonder if you can, you could talk about how, how you use dialogue, how you use the sound of a character to, to make up for perhaps not as much exposition or, or description. Yeah. It, it's the challenge. I like leaving gaps in the narrative mm -hmm. and hope that, the characters fill them in and that there isn't too much of um, too much explanation between characters. Why did you do that? Oh, I did this because I went here, I turned that corner and then I turned another corner and found myself on O'Connell Street, you know, that type <laughs> of bad dialogue. But I think the dialogue, the roots of the dialogue is, you know, you were asking me about earlier on about, you know, Ireland and literature and that tradition. And I think the roots of it come from the fact that we talk a lot in this country, you know, it's a small country insofar as it's, you know, geographically, it's a, it's a, it's a smallish island and there aren't all that many people living on it, but we make a lot of noise, you know. Uh, one of the eerie things, I have, a, I, I have an office in the city centre that I go to several times a week deliberately to get out of the house and to start wandering around the city again, you know, after the last two years. Yeah. And it was quite eerie at first because there were very few people on the streets, you know, it was very, very quiet. The restaurant, the cafes, city centre cafe, I could be the only person sitting in it, which is quite bizarre, really, in any, you know, large, by the European standards, a large Western city. So um, now it's filling up again and, they, you know, people talk, talk, talk. They talk on the bus, they talk on the streets. They talk when they're queuing, and we all did a lot of queuing in the last two years. They talk to people they don't know. There's a habit in Ireland of thanking the bus driver as you're getting off the bus. That, you know, again, the air is full of that. If you're getting off the bus uh, and there's a line of six or seven buses on the street. So it's, it's just what I grew up with. I grew up with very talkative parents. My mother would describe her day and my father would come home and she'd ask him how it was and and he was never a man to say, oh, OK, fine, grand. These were never these were words he used. But she'd ask him how, what was his day like and he'd tell her, you know, and they could be chatting away for. You know, in my memory, hours, they didn't they were quite comfortable in, in, in each other's company, but they talked all the time. And, um, you know, again, I had three siblings alive. Uh, so there were four children in the house. That was by no means a large, in the estate I grew up in, the housing estate I grew up in, there were seven kids, six kids, eight kids, nine. You know, an only child was a freak of nature, really. <laughs> it's become the norm, but 
So again, the noise, you know, it was all team sports. It was all yelling, shouting, street language, slang. Uh, slang. Uh, the first school I went to, there were 54 boys in the classroom. Mm. You know, that's a lot of boys. You know, how the teacher managed it, I don't know. But so I grew up with all this language. And I've got from an early age, I was aware that I liked it. And Flann O'Brien was a, a huge influence on me. I'm not sure if I knew just how big an influence as I read him when I was about 16. But very soon afterwards, as I began to start writing myself, I realized what he had given me was the, real, was the realization that you can put the Dublin accent on paper. Yeah. And he did that brilliantly in At Swim Two Birds, his novel At Swim Two Birds, and his other, uh, some of his other shorter pieces. And um, it was a group activity. Myself and friends discovered him at the same time. An older brother who'd gone to college had brought home at Swim Two Birds. And his younger brother, my friend, snuck it out of the house and we'd sit and read passages of at Swim Two Birds, howling with laughter because the language was so familiar to us. Yeah. I don't think we realized that you can make comedy out of this stuff, you know. The, the, the rubbish you hear your parents talking or the teachers talking or the man on the street talking or the... the um, the two lads outside the, uh, the the bookies talking, you know, or leaning against the wall outside the pub, um, and it becomes literature. And uh, so, the opportunity, if you like, or the challenge, was always there. And I think when I when I started writing what became my first novel, The Commitments, I had a like, big, big gang of characters all wanting to talk at the same time, and the challenge was to make it go at a pace without interrupting all the time to describe their physical appearance or describe the room that they were in or just let them talk, you know? Yeah, yeah. So you, as you said, there's 10 stories in this collection. And I think, you know, most of us have a general idea of how one might structure a novel. There's a beginning, there's a middle, there's an end. Sometimes you think in terms of three acts. I mean, there's, but with the collection of short stories, you have, you have 10 stories. How do, you, how do you decide how, what order to put those in how they may or may not connect to each other. How, how, yeah. does, how does a pile of separate stories become a book? It's a good question. I think what they have in common, I suppose, is the, the, the pandemic, the lockdowns, mm -hmm. the different tone of each. I, we had, I think, three formal lockdowns, legal lockdowns in this yeah. country, and each was a different uh, tone. Each had a different tone. Each had a different anxiety and impatience, uh, terror, I think, in the first, anger in the second, a bit of shame because, in a sense, we, we'd kind of brought it on ourselves, perhaps. Um, so they all were a bit different. And I wrote the stories during this time, trying to keep up, in a way, and trying to keep up with the language. You know, at the very beginning, I wrote the first one about a week after the formal lockdown that started on in March of 2020 and a lot of the things that we within a few months began to take for granted like masks and phrases like social distancing and the new use of the word droplets you know yeah. droplets became a dangerous thing rather than a sweet almost Disney image um, I tried to keep up with that so they have the, the what unifies the stories I suppose is the time they're set in. And I think just the, the notion that 
the bulk of the characters are, are of a certain age. They're all broadly the same age as myself, with one major exception, a young woman in what I suppose, if, if 10 stories can have one in the middle, um, it's the one in the middle quite deliberately because she is not literally, but she represents, I think, a lot of the children who get mentioned in the stories, but we don't get to see because none of them, very few of them live in the houses anymore. So um, the challenge was to try and see if I could, having written one story, whether there was another in me and another and whether the shifting priorities that were apparent to me as the year wore on would inspire another story, you know? So as to the order of them, it's a haphazard decision in some ways. I think, you know, the final story is actually the final story that I wrote and it's there in a way as a full stop, I suppose, but also I wrote it a year after it's set because it's set at the very beginning of the first lockdown. It's incredibly hard to reimagine myself back one year, which isn't something we have encountered usually. Usually there's not much that difference between one year to the next. You know, um, we erode slowly, so to speak. But in this case, it was so hard to get back. Started it in March of 2021 really difficult getting back to march of 2020 in the edge you know yeah. really hard but anyway i think you know I've, I've read a lot of books lately that were written you know partly before the lockdown or that were maybe edited during the lockdown where there are you know elements of the COVID experience perhaps woven in but this one i think addresses it more directly than anything i've i've read yet and one of the things that really struck me this is in the story curfew um, the protagonist is dealing with the curfew because of a hurricane. And he says, actually, he liked the drama of it. Mm. Um, and that, do you, do you think there's something within us that even in the midst of this, you know, horrific pandemic that was upending in our lives, that there was always a part of our brain that's like, oh, this is going to be a really good story for our grandchildren. You know, this is, I'm living through this dramatic time period. Um, I suppose in a way it's a, it's, it, it may be a psychological necessity so, mm. to kind of look at it as a story. I think as, as a novelist, as a writer, I've encountered, I've, I've had to deal with, I suppose, or I've experienced grief quite a lot in uh, the last eight years or so. And um, each time it's a different experience and it's dreadful. But I think even at the time, I'm aware of the fact that it, I'm a writer and that somehow or other, these feelings will find their way onto paper sometime. Mm -hmm. Not necessarily a direct record of what has occurred to me. That doesn't interest me at all. But as I suppose as lived knowledge, it can become vocabulary. It become part of my arsenal. So I think there was that during particularly when I started the first story and I began to think of the next one, I was thinking there is material here. I had been working on a novel and I, I, I put it aside because it didn't make sense anymore because the present day didn't, it didn't exist as, it, as described in the novel. And about a month in, I just been that I knew I was never going to go back to it. So the stories were really at one point, the only option for me. It was either work on the stories or don't work at all, you know? Yeah. And, um, 
they they kind of I don't know um, living through it was you know uh, I am a writer it's what I do the material was there um, I wouldn't bother I wouldn't waste my time on guilt you know yeah. <laughs> and I'm lucky in so far very very lucky in so far as nobody directly uh, in my life no close family or anybody like that was badly affected by it so far so um, I never felt I was um, walking on anybody's grave to put it a bit darkly yeah, yeah. The, the first story in the novel box sets begins it's not this didn't surprise me but you have in the very beginning mention of these box sets of DVDs and you have in the very end these box sets of DVDs and I, I wondered about titles first of all about you know, how do you, I have struggled so much to come up with titles for novels, how, how you come up with titles for stories. And then if you ever said, oh, this is a great title, now I need to rework the story so that it will fit the title more perfectly. Not to, I, I, I don't think it's impossible, let's say, having decided to call the story box sets, I may, when I was doing the final edit, have made sure that box sets get mentioned now and yeah. again. <laughs> it may well be, I don't know, can't recall. I may have the paper to go and go look at it, but you know, I'd be, I won't be doing that. Um, where the titles are always a difficulty. Um, I have finished novels and haven't had names for them. It's like rearing a child and sending them out to the world, having forgotten to give them a name. You know, it is a little bit like that. Luckily, my children were named. <laughs> very soon after they were born <laughs> but uh, novels yeah I have finished I, my novel Paddy Clark ha, 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 it didn't have a name when I sent it to my uh, publisher so it's not uncommon but uh, in all the cases of these stories I had a name for each relatively early in the writing you mm -hmm. know um, I tell you the one I called one of them the five lamps the final story the five lamps is a kind of Victorian structure with five lamps, uh, unsurprisingly, on a um, a road where, at least on a on a centre where five streets meet. Again, about a twenty minute walk from where I am, in towards the city centre. It's a famous landmark, and the bus, any bus I would ever get, will always go past it. Or if I drive, most times I'll go by it, and I walk past it several times a week. And I had this character wandering through Dublin city looking for his son and he keeps encountering, he doesn't like Dublin, doesn't like the people, doesn't like the place, but he keeps encountering people who unexpectedly are kind to him. And I wondered, where am I going with this? And I was tempted to think, you know, there might be a novel in this because I could keep him walking through the city in the same way as, you know, even Cormac McCarthy sending the, you know, in the road, the, the man and his son, you know, you could quite happily keep on reading forever and ever and ever. And I was thinking I could quite happily write this for quite a considerable time. So how many people will I have and meet and encounter? And I had already given the story the title, The Five Lamps. And I thought, well, five. Yeah. He'll meet five. And the five lamps can become more than just a, a structure on the street. So uh, that's, an, that's, a, that's an example of where the title influenced the... Um, the length and the structure of the story, yeah. I feel like um, in a lot of these stories, memory and, and the past are almost as present as 
the president, whether it's in mm. say a dialogue in, in box sets where almost every line of dialogue makes us realize, oh, this has happened in the relationship in the past, even though it's not explicitly yeah. stated, or in a or in a story like Curfew where there are, you know, flashback memories. What what role do you feel like the the past of your characters has in the in the present of a short story? Well, I was 27, 28 when I wrote The Commitments. It's a group of young people who are marching into their into their future. Yeah. They don't look back. They all went to school together, but there's virtually no mention of school. If those if that gang of people met now, they'd probably talk about nothing except school. <laughs> <laughs> Anything but the future. Because <laughs> you know? it's it's you know, it's tumors, it's grief, it's death, it's you know, anxiety about children and grandchildren. So anything except the future. And I think I, my characters are at a stage where, you know, again, like myself, we've a rucksack, we've a backpack full of memory, full of moments, full of things to look back on. So there's that. A lot of the characters that I would be writing about now and for the future, I would imagine, will be people who look back a lot, you know. Uh, it's inevitable. It's it's honest and it's inevitable. Another reason why there's a lot of if you conversation from the past or in the past in the stories is because a lot of the characters are alone. They're you know they're isolated now because perforce because of the um, the, the lockdowns and the restrictions. So they're talking. If you like, in many ways they're talking to themselves or talking into their pasts because there's no one else to talk to. <laughs> they're alone. So um, I kind of, I suppose if I'm famous for anything as a, as a writer, I'm famous for the dialogue. And the challenge then was, to, you know, not so much how do you insert a piece of dialogue in a story is about one person who never meets anybody. Yeah. It's not that, it's just that combination of, I suppose when you're in a moment like this, you look back a lot, don't you? you, you because um, even now, you know, with the, uh, the invasion of the Ukraine, looking over the fence at what might be coming is just it's very hard yeah. very very hard um there's nothing good out there you know so looking back is is um psychologically easier in many ways and looking back even to find out how do we cope with this before you know or how did i cope with this before so it's um the, so the, the the key reasons i think as well it, that there's a lot of um looking back to the past and setting earlier versions of themselves in the past is because that's what we do as we get older. And I suppose also that's what we do when we're alone. There's, there's a moment in, in curfew that I think will resonate with any reader who has a parent or a child, which is all of us. Uh, when he said, when the narrator says he was determined that I wouldn't become my father. Um, I, I think it's something, a thought we've probably all had in, in one generation or another, how do you work to make those um, those specific moments in the lives of a specific character resonate in a universal way with a wide variety of readers? Well, as you said, we've all had a father and some of us never knew him. Some of us knew him too well. Some of us, uh, I'm not sure, but we all had one. So it's an essential human facet. I had a father who lived till he was 90. So I knew him. 
I suppose I'm not sure exactly what age he was born in 1923 and I was born in 1958. So what was he, 35 when I was born? And uh, so he was around for quite a while. You know, I was in my 50s when he died and I knew him, you know, as a tiny little boy and I knew him as a middle-aged man, me being the middle-aged man. Uh, so I had a great rounded picture of my father. And um, so... I loved him very much, and he was a, a great dad in a traditional sense, in many ways, great entertainment as well, very funny man, very intelligent man, um, very reliable and stable man in, many, in, in, in so many, many ways. And yet, any time I'm told I'm like my father, or I'm a ringer for my father, or I see my facial expression when I'm shaving or something, I don't, I don't want to be like my father. You know, I just don't. I suppose nobody wants to be like anybody else. Unless, you know, it's some fantasy of being a footballer or something like that. You know, you don't want to, you know. And so, uh, you know, I felt when I when I have little moments like that, and it's not the only time I've done it where a man has recoiled at the idea of being his father. Uh, to my, you know, I, I remember the first time I did it in a in a stark kind of way. I was thinking, you know, I'm not alone out here doing this. You know, this is, you know, this is a bit Greek, I'm sure. <laughs> you know what I mean? This is this goes back thousands of years to the very beginning. I needn't worry about people wondering what's that all about, you know, <laughs> unless the, unless the reader is eight or something like that. <laughs> Why doesn't he want to be like his father? Every boy wants to be like his father, you know. So. It's, um, yeah, I suppose one of the things as I write and I, 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 you know, characters encounter other characters and remind themselves of other people and they, is that I've always felt quite confident that the examples I use resonate somehow. That, that notion of universality, it's the, I suppose my writing is quite parochial insofar as it rarely strays from too far away from where I live, but the universality is the fact that it's human beings, you know, yeah. and uh, we all feel the same way. Ultimately, I think about most things. Mm -hmm. I, I feel like a, a novel, more so than a short story. It it's you kind of know when it's over. If you as as a as a as a mm. writer, at least I know. You know, I sort of set out a yeah. curve, or I might know not know every step on the journey, but when I get to the end, I know. Oh yeah, that's the end of the novel. Yeah, but with a short story. I don't always feel that way. How do you mm. how do you know when it's the end, or do you know before you start writing what the end is going to be? I'm very quickly flicking through the ten stories of the most recent collection, and I don't think there was a moment when I knew where the end was going to be. Mm. And in fact, one or two cases, I hadn't a clue where the story was going until I trust myself to to come up with an answer. You know, I think if I sat and waited for the answer, I'd never get round to writing the thing. I suspect we're all a bit like that. Uh, and I'm a bit like yourself. I might know how the story's going to end, you know, or if it's a novel, but I don't necessarily know how I'm going to get there. I know I'm going to Galway, but I have to figure out how to get there, you right. know, but it is reassuring to know that's where I'm going, so yeah. to speak. It's on the other side of the country somewhere. So I walk towards the setting sun. <laughs> I'll eventually hit it. Right. <laughs> you know? And it's a small country, so it won't, you know, I'll eventually get there, um, but uh, I don't. I don't worry too much about um, 
coming to an end. But the stories, again, with that one, the five lamps, I was wondering, how am I going to end this? I did want the father to meet the goal, if you like. I did want him to attain what it was that he was trying to achieve. I didn't know how I was going to get there. And I came up with this idea of one of the people he encounters is a little girl, you know, and it's, it's unexpected, I suppose. Little girl who says something very wise to him that probably no adult would say. She can get away with it in a way. And it sounds wise and very sweet coming from her. I would sound a bit teachery coming from somebody else, if you know what I mean. So it just struck me that's where... The story will end about 10 lines after that young one. That little girl says what she says. Yeah. But I didn't know that until the day I decided to do it. Yeah. But that's one of the great things, isn't it? Sometimes, you know, I don't know how many times I've finished something unexpectedly. It just felt right. Oh, I'm finished, you know. Yeah. Yeah. In a moment of terror. Oh, Christ, I'm finished. <laughs> <laughs> there's, there's a moment in Curfew that I thought was just a great sort of commentary on the whole idea of story and what story is um you have this man like all steel himself ready to witness the drama of a severe hurricane he's all he's even sort of excited about the fact there's going to be this drama and in the end it's not that much of a storm and he, and he says oh. um the leaves were the story the fact that nothing was happening the leaves going the wrong way and the woman with the teddy bear they were mm -hmm. his stories yeah. how do you how do you take the things that seem like they're not the story and make them the story the non-event so to speak yeah, yeah yeah it becomes the story well that that did actually occur and um, i'm trying to think it wasn't called hurricane ophelia it may have been on your side of the atlantic but yeah. it was called yeah. x hurricane ophelia where we <laughs> but it did it hammered the west coast you know and i live on the east coast in dublin and we were all braced for the whole country was on red alert. Literally, there was a, there was a curfew. We weren't allowed out. And the emotional whack of that is that my mother, this is uh, going back four years, literally almost oh, very close to the day. My mother was in the local hospice. She was dying. She was 92 and she was dying. And I would have gone there every day. She'd been there for about a week. And myself and my siblings had tried to look after her in the last months of her life at home in her house where I grew up. So she was in the hospice and I was going to the hospice every day. Um, and this was during, you know, this wasn't during the hurricane. It was during um, a snow blizzard. And we were told we couldn't go out. Mm. And there was the anxiety of thinking, I can't go and visit my mother. What happened? What something happens? And there was the relief of knowing I had license not to go and see my mother, you know, for 24 hours. And I lay back on the bed as the character does. And I just slept, you know, and I felt guilty about it at one level. And then also quite relieved that I could sleep. So I took that key moment in my life and put it into the hurricane instead, because I thought the hurricane had more going for it than the, mm -hmm. than the snow. Yeah. <laughs> and it was the hurricane that never happened in a way, because it didn't hit, the, you know, it didn't hit the East Coast. And we were all braced for it. And, you know, I'd never, I'd never experienced a hurricane before, except on TV. Yeah. And I live on the coast, you know, so we're all familiar with windy days, but that's all they were. But I saw Dorothy, you know, in the, right. in the air. And I, yeah, <laughs> a house spinning in the air and, 
I was looking out at the wheelie bins that we have, you know, along the street and thinking, am I going to see them spinning in the air? And I sat on the side of the bed and nothing happened. You know, literally nothing happened except the leaves. I live on a hill. The leaves went up the hill, <laughs> which, was, which was actually great to watch. The, 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 the water didn't, but the leaves did. They went up the hill. So I wasn't thinking of a story when this happened, but I think little moments like that, again, as a writer, you file them away. Yeah. Some of them get used, some of them not. And sometimes the big moments in your life don't get used. And the little incidental things, the little things you see, the little sweet little thing like a child looking at a cigarette butt on the ground. That ends up staying in your head all your life, you know, whereas something much more important doesn't. Yeah. Well, we like to end every episode of Inside the Writer's Studio with the same 10 questions. You should be able to answer okay. each of them in just a, a few words, but hopefully they'll give our <laughs> listeners a little insight into you and, and to the way you write. So, This sort of thing terrifies me now. <laughs> oh, it's, it's not too bad, I promise. <laughs> I always feel I'm at school. <laughs> what word do you love to work into your writing? Sad. Okay. What he word, said, she said. What word do you hate to encounter in other people's writing? Delicious when it's not about food. Where's your favorite place to write? Uh, my office here at, at home in my house. Where could you never write? Never, probably while swimming. I can't think of any other. <laughs> but I could, I could well be thinking about writing while swimming. Yeah, but yeah, yeah, it would be a challenge. <laughs> to what rule of grammar do you pay least attention? Ending a sentence with a preposition. Oh yeah. I always thought that was a really stupid one. Yeah. And worse yet, starting a sentence with and seems perfectly okay to me. Yeah. Uh, what was the first book you remember reading? Tiny, a little book about uh, that my uncle Joe, who lived in Washington, D.C., sent home to us. You know, he'd send home a box of books and other things every now and again. Tiny little book, picture book about a family of mice. Mm. Uh it's a bit like the grapes of wrath with a happier ending. They're moving from, um, I think it was Oklahoma to California yeah. and they're all loaded up on the truck and they're heading the way. I don't remember the, much about the plot, but it was uh, absorbing. I read it again and again and again and again and again. Mm. What are you reading now? I'm reading a novel by a young Irish uh, woman called Jan Carson called The Raptures. It's just published and it's really very, very good. What book would you like to have written? Danny, the Champion of the World by Roald Dahl. <laughs> what sort of book would you like to write, but probably never will? Some huge, multi-generational epic. Mm -hmm. And finally, what would you like to hear a reader tell you? <laughs> I read your book. I liked it. This has been Inside the Writer's Studio. I'm your host, Charlie Lovett, and my guest today has been Roddy Doyle, whose short story collection, Life Without Children, is available wherever books are sold. Roddy, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Inside the Writer's Studio is sponsored by Bookmarks, a literary nonprofit that runs the largest annual book festival in the Carolinas and operates a community gathering place and nonprofit independent bookstore in downtown Winston-Salem, North Carolina. To find out more about Bookmarks and all its programs, visit www.bookmarksnc.org. Inside the Writer's Studio is proud to be affiliated with Libro FM. Unlike other audiobook platforms, Libro FM supports your local independent bookstore. Whether you buy a single book or, like me, a monthly subscription, 
You can link your account to your local store or to bookmarks to support literary community. For a special two-for-one offer, go to Libro.fm and use the discount code WRITERS. If you've enjoyed Inside the Writer's Studio, please consider leaving a rating or review online at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Inside the Writer's Studio posts new episodes on the 1st and 15th of every month. I'll be taking a little holiday in April to perform in the Little Theater of Winston-Salem's production of Out of Order. So if you're nearby, come and see us the first two weekends in April. Until then, thanks for listening, and may you read with wonder and write with passion.